0: Mobituaries presented by Crystal Cruises, the world's most awarded luxury cruise line, offering all-inclusive voyages by ocean, river, yacht, and expedition. Discover a world where luxury is personal. Visit crystalcruises.com today. On the evening of January 8th, 1964, nearly half of American households tuned their TV sets to CBS for an epic matchup.
1: Yeah, no, it was huge. The juggernauts. It was a classic one.
0: No, it wasn't Muhammad Ali versus Sonny Liston.
1: <laughs> now, are you gonna come
2: peaceable? Or do I have to take you by force?
0: It was a fight between a feisty grandmother and a kangaroo she had mistaken for a giant jackrabbit. A giant jackrabbit! I had him cornered, but he fistfought me! <laughs> fist-fought you? Yes, he did! This was the actual premise of an episode of the classic sitcom The Beverly Hillbillies. And while it may seem preposterous, you have to understand this aired less than two months after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. In fact, Earlier that same day, the new president, Lyndon Johnson, delivered his first State of the Union address to a still traumatized nation.
2: And, you know, here's this little old, you know, hillbilly lady confused by what a kangaroo is. You don't get more escapist than
0: that. The Beverly Hillbillies, a classic fish-out-of-water story featuring the Backwoods' Clampett family who strike it rich went on to become one of the most successful sitcoms of all time, averaging upwards of 50 million viewers during its run, the kind of numbers you never see today outside a Super Bowl. (laughs) Profits soared, and CBS greenlit a whole host of new shows catering to audiences who couldn't get enough of country-themed programming. This was the height of rural representation on network TV. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside. But by the end of the decade, the network put the Clampett clan and all of their country cousins out to pasture.
3: These la di da city folks don't want our kind around. I would put that notion in your head.
0: They even put down Lassie.
3: Lassie!
2: Anything in the country, anything that was not in a city with brick and concrete, bye bye
0: In this episode, we'll investigate what caused the largest slaughter in sitcom history and meet the man who wielded the axe. He and
2: I literally uh, whacked the hell out of that schedule and canceled about a dozen and a half
0: shows. From CBS Sunday Morning and Simon and & Schuster, I'm Moraka, and this is Mobituaries. Mobituaries. This Mobit, the Rural Purge. March 16th, 1971. Death of the Country Broadcasting System.
3: The big wheels at the network started spinning. The verdict was that hee haw had to go. Cause city slickers don't believe in grinning. And who the heck needs jokes and Kokomo?
0: That's Hee Haw co-host and country music legend Roy Clark singing about the rural purge in 1972, one year after CBS canceled the musical variety show, consigning it to syndication.
3: They canceled all the singing and the picking, but the stubborn little donkey wouldn't leave. And that little fella's still alive and kicking. Up
1: its
0: that song is, is smart, it's satirical. I mean, it's about the rural purge.
1: I think it's about rural people in general feeling left behind. And I think this is them saying, you know, the, the networks don't care about us. Like, we're forgotten, and this is a show that remembers that we're here.
0: Sarah Eskridge hails from Virginia and wrote a book all about the sitcom slaughter. Rube Tube, CBS and Rural Comedies in the 1960s. And so how much TV did you have to watch to write this book?
1: I was watching about four hours a day over the course of about a year, year and a half.
0: So basically you were an average American.
1: Uh, Yeah, except that I was having to take notes and look for themes. And, um, you know, so it was work after all.
0: Let's go back to the beginning. Okay. And by which I mean the beginning of television because life didn't really exist before television. What is CBS in the late 40s and 1950s? What is its image?
1: CBS is the Sterling Network in the 40s and 50s. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: Also known as the Tiffany Network. Now, in those early days, the only people with access to TV signals lived in cities.
1: At that point, they're they're putting a lot of programming on that features immigrants, that features Jewish families, that features people of color. They're trying to appeal to the demographics of the place where they're making the shows. Amos and
0: Andy, which revolved around a group of African-American friends in Harlem, was originally created and voiced by white actors on radio. On TV, the show still played to racial stereotypes. But the cast was entirely African-American, the first show with an all-black cast, something that wouldn't be seen on CBS again until the 1970s. And this one really surprised me. More than 60 years before The Goldbergs premiered on ABC...
1: Yoo-hoo, Mrs. Goldberg!
0: ...there was The Goldbergs on CBS. Just hearing from your relatives in Europe after not hearing for so many years? That's beautiful. Uh,
1: Jake, darling, did you count how many times they asked us to send the And family? the characters
0: are obviously Jewish. They're yes, not and that's a right. big
1: part of the story. They don't try to hide that. It's emphasized. And then, unfortunately, what happens with The Goldbergs is that one of the lead characters is included in one of those lists.
0: Sarah is referring to lists of communist sympathizers, which included actor Philip Loeb, who played the male lead on The Goldbergs. This was all at the height of the Red Scare, with the government investigating so-called communist infiltration of American institutions, including the media. FBI director J. Edgar Hoover reportedly dubbed CBS the communist broadcasting system, not the image you wanted in Cold War America. Around the same time, TV signals were beginning to spread beyond urban centers into America's heartland. So it was adios to those ethnic comedies. So CBS's entertainment slate becomes whitewashed, basically.
1: Yes. Um, they're trying to find something that's going to appeal to the largest possible demographic. And so they start out by saying, OK, quiz shows, that's a great way to go.
2: Yes, the
3: $64,000 question.
0: That is until CBS and NBC came under investigation for rigging the results. But there was a new television craze riding to the rescue. Gun, we'll travel, reach the card of a man.
1: Westerns are popular across the board. Every network is doing them. And that's emphasizing new American ideals. It's the idea of the West and American individualism and, and being rugged and, and masculine. And,
0: and, and you know a Western from the title. I mean, there's no kidding around here, right? Gunsmoke, starring James. Gunsmoke, I mean, is just a monster.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There were about 41 Westerns on television at one time, and this is across three networks. Wow.
0: Westerns were especially popular with the expanding rural and southern markets. And it was those markets CBS was aiming at with its very first rural comedy premiering in 1960.
2: The Andy Griffith Show, starring Andy Griffith. So The Andy Griffith Show is one of the great shows of all time, one of the great family sitcoms of all time. Maybe the best show about small town life ever made.
0: You may remember Alan Sepinwall from our Season 1 episode on sitcom character Deaths and Disappearances. Alan is the chief TV critic for Rolling Stone, and if you couldn't tell, he's a big fan of The Andy Griffith Show.
2: Andy Griffith plays Sheriff Andy Taylor of Mayberry, a small town in North Carolina. He has a deputy, Barney Fife, played by the great Don Knotts, who is, who is really eager but also completely bumbling. So Andy will not allow him to put a, a bullet in
3: his gun. You come very near shooting yourself in the foot you know they ain't exactly much of a call for one-legged deputies.
1: You're combining some of the elements of the Western with some of the elements of the rural comedy. So you've got a sheriff. He's kind of standing in as that law figure
0: and Mayberry is kind of an idol. I mean, it's for, for a lot of people, right? It's Absolutely. a fantasy. I mean, the only the only lawbreaker is the town drunk and he locks himself in at I, night.
3: I didn't get my full eight hours in one. I don't get my full eight hours. I'm grouchy. Do you mind? <laughs>
0: the Andy Griffith Show became such a breakout success that it birthed its own set of lesser quality spinoffs throughout the 1960s. USMC. Gomer Pyle was originally Mayberry's lovably dim weighted filling station attendant.
2: Howdy, Gomer. Hi, Annie. me. Regular hot tape. Jim Neighbors played him, you know, had a lot of catchphrases, you know, golly.
0: Golly.
2: And Shazam.
0: Shazam.
2: Uh, and then at a certain point, they decided to have him enlist in the Marines.
0: And later in the decade, there was Mayberry RFD. Note to our urban listeners, RFD stands for rural free delivery.
2: It's basically the Andy Griffith show without Andy. It's, it's Andy Griffith was ready to move on, but they wanted to keep the show going.
0: Now, this burgeoning rural comedy cornucopia isn't happening on its own. Someone's greenlighting these shows.
1: James Aubrey is really the mastermind of the rural craze at CBS.
0: I just have to say, his name is mud to me because he canceled the Judy Garland show.
1: Yeah, so... And,
0: and that is just, that's a capital crime in my opinion. The types of shows championed by James Aubrey invited a rebuke in 1961 from federal communications chairman Newton Minow, who thought the networks could do better.
1: When television is good, nothing, not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse.
0: This is what came to be known as the vast wasteland speech.
1: I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families, blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, sadism, murder, western men. He is
2: arguing that he did not feel television was living up to its vast potential, the kind of potential that a network like CBS had displayed often throughout the
0: 50s. And, of course about a year and a half after that speech, I think after maybe a little bit of soul-searching maybe there was they felt a little bit chastened the Beverly Hillbillies premieres. <laughs> <laughs> you know we thought about what you said Newton Minow, but we really like this Clampett family pitch. Oh my God And ooh boy did that corn yield a profit? Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries, the podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries, the book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line. Sports teams that threw in the towel for good. Forgotten fashions. Defunct diagnoses. Presidential candidacies that cratered. Whole countries that went kaput. And dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. This is Beverly Hills. Here dwelled the rich, the famous, the glamorous. In September 1962, CBS premiered a new series about one of the most exclusive enclaves in the country, home to...
3: Sportsmen? Playboys?
0: Hillbillies? Hillbillies? (laughs) Who are these people?
3: Where are they from? And why did they come to Beverly Hills?
0: The Beverly Hillbillies was one of the most popular shows on television in the 1960s.
2: Well, as, as a wise man once sang, it's, it's the story of a man named Jed. He was a poor mountaineer. He barely kept his family fed. But then one day he was shooting at some food, and you know what happened? Up through the ground came bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold, Texas tea.
0: Jed, along with his daughter Ellie Mae, nephew Jethro, and granny, decide to pack up and... Move to Beverly. Hills, that is. Yeah, movie stars, swimming pools. <laughs> The Beverly Hillbillies was the brainchild of comedy writer Paul Henning, who had come to California by way of Independence, Missouri, which also happened to be the hometown of President Harry Truman. Young Paul got his start as a soda jerk at the local drugstore.
3: And who should come in there but Harry Truman? And he talked with him a couple of times.
0: That's Henning's daughter, Linda.
3: And Harry, you know, said, well, one thing you ought to do is go to law school. He said, it'll never hurt you to to get a degree in law.
0: Well, thank God he didn't stick with that.
3: Yes.
0: (laughs) The inspiration for the hillbillies came from Henning's summers in the Ozarks.
3: I think he observed people, and he loved the honesty. Uh, He always called Jed one of nature's noblemen.
0: Jed Clampett
3: yeah he must have known somebody kind of like Jed I would think now I know that Ellie Mae was partially based on me because I'm an animal nut
0: and and can we just say the actors who played these roles I mean Irene Ryan who played (laughs) granny she was (laughs) a great actress
3: oh she's wonderful she was great and she came in to see daddy to read for him dressed kind of as Granny, and, and Daddy took one look at her and thought, here she is, you know, this is Granny.
0: Veteran Hollywood actor Buddy Ebsen played Jed. Quick aside, Ebsen was the original choice to play the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz.
3: Well, uh, people have asked me, oh, to what I attribute to success of the Hillbills, it was people, and uh, humor, a- genuine humor. Paul Henning uh,
0: is a genius. H- who out there do you think he was writing the show for?
3: I think the people he, he basically knew, which was in between the two coasts, you know, just your basic people.
0: He certainly wasn't writing for the critics. Reviewers called the series painful to sit through and the most shamelessly corny show in years. Even the Hillbillies should take umbrage. As a TV critic, what's your take on the Beverly Hillbillies? Uh, I don't
2: think that's a show I would review very positively were it to debut today. Look, they made a lot of money off of it, so some somebody was being smart about something, even though everyone on that show is so dumb.
0: Turns out, even some of the folks working inside CBS at the time were flummoxed. Here's the late newsman, Mike Wallace.
3: I confess I didn't really understand what was
2: going on. I mean, this was, after all, the network of of the stars. And suddenly... Beverly
0: Hillbillies, uh-uh. But Sarah Eskridge thinks the critics then and now have it backwards.
1: It's very subversive because I think what you see with this family Um, is that they make fools out of the people that are around them in Beverly Hills. I tell you, Jed,
3: this place is full of the laziest, greasiest, unfriendliest mess of people I ever did lay my
1: eyes on.
0: Okay, and there's an old tradition of this, right? Like the the, the country folk who are, in fact, have horse sense, who are smarter than the city slickers and the ways that matter.
1: Exactly, and so, you know, they might not be well-versed in 20th century consumer culture, but they're well-versed in family. They're well-versed in how to survive off the land. They're well-versed in how to be a good friend and community member.
0: The rural comedies were beginning to reshape CBS. Meanwhile, sitting atop the network was a man known for his fine taste and erudition. William Paley, the legendary chairman of CBS, I mean, sort of very sophisticated guy. What does he think of these shows?
1: He is less than pleased. By the time the Beverly Hillbillies comes along, you start hearing CBS. It's not the communist broadcast system anymore, but it's now the country broadcast system. However, the money that they're minting from these shows helps ease the pain a little bit.
2: Yeah, no, it was huge. This was, you know, they aired one of the most watched episodes of television ever in which Granny goes and punches a kangaroo.
0: That she mistakes for a giant jackrabbit? Yes. Is she trying to cook the jackrabbit? I, I, why are you asking me these questions? I don't know.
3: Well, I'll tell you this story.
0: That's Linda Henning again.
3: One day I looked out of my dressing room window and saw Granny, who I thought was Granny, it turned out to be the stuntman dressed like Granny, riding a kangaroo that had been saddled down the street. So, that's the kind of thing you'd sometimes run into when you worked there.
0: That didn't happen on the set of All in the Family.
3: (laughs) No, (laughs) not at all. No, no kangaroos on that set.
0: Linda Henning was nearby because she was working on the set of her father's latest hit sitcom, Petticoat Junction.
1: Come ride the little train that is rolling down the tracks to the junction.
0: I really didn't know much about Petticoat, and quite frankly, there isn't much to know. I'll let the show's theme song explain.
2: There's a little hotel called the
1: shady rest at the junction. Petticoat, junction. It is run by Kate come and be her guest at the junction. Petticoat, junction.
0: The show takes place at a hotel along a spur of a railroad that's been cut off from the main track. Once a week, a new visitor will check in.
2: That's the whole show. Like, nothing really much happens. It's just sort of lingering around the hotel, the train
0: station, a little bit the town. B. Benaderet played family matriarch and hotel owner Kate. As long as you're a guest in my hotel, you're entitled to shady rest hospitality. But TV fans of all ages may know her far better for another role.
3: What's going on, Barney? What are you up to?
0: B. Be Benaderet was Betty Rubble. I loved Betty Rubble. Yes, yes. <laughs> from the Flintstones.
3: <laughs> she was. She was wonderful. Kind of my mentor.
0: The widowed Kate had three daughters whose names were forever confused.
3: Billy Joe, Betty Joe, and Bobby Joe. And I was Betty Joe, the youngest. I'll admit I'm not doing so well in my minor subjects, but I'm leading my class in basketball, gymnastics, and ice hockey.
0: Probably the most memorable image from the show was from the opening credits, with all three teenage girls peering out from the inside of a water tower with their petticoats hanging over the side. Linda was the redhead.
3: I would get fan letters from girls who'd say, when I come home from school, uh, we play Petticoat Junction and I'm you.
0: Now, along that railroad was the fictional Hooterville. And thanks to the continuing country comedy craze, the Paul Henning universe expanded a third and final time in 1965 with Green Acres.
2: How do you feel about New York City, Mr. Douglas? I hate it. Mrs. Douglas disagrees.
3: I certainly do.
0: Green Acres was the reverse Beverly Hillbillies. A city slicker lawyer played by Eddie Albert convinces his socialite wife played by Ava Gabor, to move to the country.
3: You are my wife. Goodbye,
2: city life. Green Acres, we are
0: there. Exactly. It's a great theme song.
2: So they move, they move to Hooterville. They, they start running a farm instead of him being a big city lawyer. Uh, and then weirdly, she fits in much better than he does, even though it was his idea.
0: The show was edgier, more imaginative than the Beverly Hillbillies or Petticoat Junction.
2: You know, there's a pig with a full name, Arnold Ziffel. Right. Um, Square eggs. Yeah, there's an episode where the the hen starts laying square eggs. Things were very strange and surreal and just much more creative than they tended to get on the other two shows. And by the way, we need to
0: do a better job educating our children. I meet too many young people who think that Zsa Zha Gabor was the star no, of Green Acres.
2: No, no, no. Gabor came to Gilligan's Island on a speedboat and didn't rescue them for reasons, you know, passing understanding. Is that true? Yes. But Ava Gabor was Lisa on Green Acres. You know, they had another
0: sister, Magda. I did not. Yeah, she didn't really do much. She was a socialite. The Zeppo. She said, there you go. Exactly. She was a Zeppo, which is better than being the, there's still yet another one. Gummo. Gummo. Okay. Okay. Or at least, at least she was the Zeppo. Since the worlds of Paul Henning's shows all overlapped, there were plenty of opportunities for crossover episodes. His daughter, Linda, remembers.
3: And when I did the Hillbillies, Granny and, and Jed and everybody came out to Hooterville, to the Shady Rest Hotel. And Granny mistook the dog who had jumped in the baby carriage for my child.
0: <laughs> There's a lot of animal confusion with oh, Granny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing all the rural comedies had in common, they seem to exist in a parallel universe. You know, when I watched these shows, and I didn't watch Petticoat Junction, but when I watched certainly Green Acres and, um, and Andrew Griffith's show and Beverly Hillbillies, you know, I would look for clues about what was going on in the world at that time. And if they were there, boy, they're hard to find.
2: No, those those shows are entirely designed to get, like, create a big impenetrable wall between the world outside your window and the one being projected on your TV screen. Hermetically sealed.
1: So, it's very escapist. All of these horrible things that are happening in the country um, that are that seem to be tearing the country apart, none of that's happening in rural comedy.
0: No special episodes acknowledging the assassinations of JFK, MLK, or RFK. No references to violence in the South linked to the civil rights movement.
1: The Andy Griffith show that's supposed to be Mount Airy, which is a a stone's throw from Greensboro where the first sit-in took place in 1960. And that took place within just a couple months of the show airing.
0: And I got to tell you, when you think of Sheriff Andy, I mean, if you say to me, law enforcement officer, the South, the 1960s, I think, Bull Connor, right? Exactly. In, in Alabama, and African Americans being attacked with water hoses.
1: Exactly, and and he's completely the the exact opposite. And I think that it's a presenting a kinder, gentler South in what's being shown on the news.
0: And pretty much all the characters on these shows are white.
1: Absolutely. With rural comedies, you'll have black guest stars, you will have um, maybe a storyline that revolves around one black character, which happened in the Andy Griffith show. But I, think I Total, don't remember that. Um, it's a story where Obie's football coach um, is also playing the piano and teaches him that it's okay to be cultured and also like sports.
2: If things are sort of planned and worked out, it's always possible to pursue several interests at the same time.
1: It's the only episode out of 249 that features a speaking black character. Wow. Uh, you know Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, guest starred on The Beverly Hillbillies in a later season as a cop. As a cop,
0: which is which is kind of odd.
1: As a is an interesting choice,
0: and, and not just a cop. He's an Irish cop.
3: Well, it is myself but
1: sorry I didn't have the pleasure of meeting the likes of the O'Clamants.
0: And of course, he nails the accent because he's Sammy Davis Jr. and can do anything. Big fan here.
1: That I think that might have been my favorite five minutes I watched in the entire year and a half that I was watching rural comedy. Hallelujah.
0: The war in Vietnam certainly wasn't being mentioned on these shows. Remember Gomer Pyle? You know the character who moved from Mayberry to a Marine base in the mid nineteen sixties.
1: Uh, you know the fact that he's a Marine, he would he would have been in Danang um, faster than he could have snapped his fingers. And uh, you know, and yet somehow he never gets deployed. None of his friends get deployed. No one gets killed.
0: And it doesn't get any more cut off from the main world than Petticoat Junction. Remember, the entire premise was built around a train that was quite literally cut off from the main line. Yet Linda Henning defends the value of escapism. She remembers receiving fan mail from servicemen who were watching her show overseas.
3: Oh, it moved me a lot. And I was glad that there was something that, talk about escape, that there was something that they could see that maybe would take them away from some of the horror of what they were experiencing.
0: But a new generation of viewers wanted an escape from escapism. From Television City in Hollywood... Ladies and gentlemen, meet the Smothers Brothers. With the Smothers Brothers comedy hour in the late 1960s, CBS ventured out of the bubble with a show that dared to address current events. War.
1: They were clean cut, wore suits, they looked like the boys next door, but their comedy was very subversive and they seemed to have their finger on the pulse of... The music scene, especially, and so they had all of these wonderful musical groups. Their comedy uh, had a lot of double entendres that were considered risque.
0: They had Pete Seeger come on to sing an anti-war song. It was a very big deal.
1: Yes, and and that's part of the problem is that as they become more popular, they also start to become more political.
0: Are you aware of what the Smothers Brothers is replaced with? Ah, uh, I
2: I'm, I don't remember. Yeehaw! Oh, my. Yes. Oh, my God.
0: The Smothers brothers were too much too soon for CBS. In the words of the network brass, the brothers were unwilling to accept the criteria of taste established by CBS and were pulled off the air in 1969.
2: They were replaced by this, you know, country music variety show, which could not be more philosophically or stylistically opposite of what the Smothers were doing.
1: It's, um, I mean, it, it does seem like it's designed to appeal to every possible Southern stereotype. And um, I, I confess, out of all the rural comedies, that's the only one that I actually was, um, watched growing up was not on purpose. My grandparents loved Hee Haw. Why do you think um, they loved it? Um, because they liked the music.
0: The music. And let, let's just point out Roy Clark and Buck Owens, the hosts, Great musical talents. Incredible musicians. I mean, Buck Owens, they're going to put me in a movie. (laughs) They're going to make a big star out of me. You know, they'll make a a film about a man who's sad and lonely, but all I
1: got to do is act naturally. Oh, yeah. He's great. Just incredible musicians. But they loved the music, the jokes were corny would be putting it mildly now what's the difference between a hairdresser and a sculptor
0: I don't know what
1: well a hairdresser curls up and dies and a sculptor makes faces and busts (laughs) you kind of had to watch between your fingers because I felt a little embarrassed for them that they were doing it but they you know the older folks in my life loved that show so it was on
0: and Hee Haw was a hit but it turned out to be a last stand for rural comedy With the arrival of a new sheriff at CBS, hee-haw was about to get the old heave-ho. In through the saloon doors comes Fred
1: Silverman. And he detests rural comedy with a passion that exceeds a 1,000 burning suns. Um, He thinks that rural comedy is stupid.
0: Fred Silverman would go on to become a network television legend known as the man with the golden gut, responsible for Roots, MASH, and Scooby-Doo. But back in 1970, he was the brash 33-year-old brand-new head of programming at CBS. And he had one mission— to rid the network of rural comedy. Fred Silverman called those rural comedies shit-kicking. Is that necessarily an insult?
1: I don't think anything that you use the word shit to describe is probably going to be considered a, a positive.
0: Well, if I say you're the shit, not you, that would be a compliment. <laughs> but okay, sort of. I don't say that.
1: It's not yeah, my style, um, I think that he thinks that people who watch those shows are people who are literally kicking shit for a living.
2: Fred Silverman did not really strike me as the kind of guy who would kick back and watch Petticoat Junction or some of these other shows. But it's really a matter of changing demographics. Earlier, Nielsen was largely just measuring audiences. How many people are watching? How many sets are tuned in? And at a certain point, they were able to break it down and say, this number of people in a city are watching versus this number of people in rural America. You know, these households that are wealthy versus these households that are blue collar. But a lot of people
0: were still watching. Yes.
2: People still like these shows. Fred Silverman, his business people were saying, look, we can't sell advertising on these because the only people who are watching them are the hicks from the sticks. And we want to be able to sell ads to people in big cities with big disposable income uh, because that's where advertisers want. Here's Fred Silverman in
0: 2001. Something had to be done. And uh, I think there was total agreement. Bob Wood, who is president of the network, his boss, Jack Schneider and Paley said, let's, let's bite the bullet. Silverman and his bosses began with a little target practice. Petticoat Junction was the first to buy the farm. Linda Henning remembers.
3: I still to this day think it was kind of lousy what they did. Uh, we never heard from the powers that be at CBS. Nobody bothered to call us.
0: The Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, and Hee Haw were soon primed for slaughter were scheduled for Tuesday night. As Fred Silverman saw it, let
2: Tuesday be the receptacle for all the crap that uh, that we we weren't able to cancel yet.
0: Meanwhile, CBS began experimenting with more urban and gritty fare. The results of those experiments were mixed.
3: You've got an appointment
0: with the interns on Friday. These weren't about unpaid employees. <laughs> they were young doctors. And the tagline was The Interns. It's about what it's all about. Wait, wait, you're using that tagline for a doctor show? I guess so. I mean, by Jean-Paul Sartre. I mean, it's just... Like, that feels like
2: a Seinfeld tagline or something.
0: (laughs) And then there was the storefront lawyers, and this was an earnest attempt to sort of um, be attuned to what was going on in the world.
3: Change within the establishment. Young advocates practicing law. In Century City to pay the bills. In the ghetto to pay their dues.
0: Both shows were canceled after one season, but hope was not lost. That same season, a certain show about a girl who turned the world on with her smile premiered. You're gonna make it after Silverman realized that the Mary Tyler Moore Show was the kind of show that could restore luster to the Tiffany Network. And I, I looked at Mary Tyler Moore and I said, "This is such a terrific show." We got this sitting in in the middle of all this shit kicker shows. And then halfway through the 1970-71 season, CBS took a chance on producers Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin and their new comedy, All in the Family.
2: What's this country coming to anyhow? What is it, Archie? Bad news? What else? We get out of Vietnam or something?
0: (laughs) Don't be a wise guy, huh? Smart controversial, thrilling television that made people laugh and think. And for Archie Bunker to live, Jed Clampett would have to die. Fred Silverman explained.
1: I worked for a man by the name of
2: Bob Wood, who was president of the network, and uh, he and I literally
0: uh, whacked the hell out of that schedule and canceled about a dozen and a half shows. The casualty list eventually included all the rural comedies. The largest slaughter in sitcom history. TV legend Ed Sullivan was collateral damage due to his older skewing audience. Silverman's like wielding a machete going through this cornfield.
1: Gleefully, gleefully so.
0: One actor may have put it best when he lamented CBS canceled everything with a tree in it.
2: Anything in the country, anything that was not in a city with brick and concrete, bye-bye. Yeah, I would not have wanted to be a CBS switchboard operator in, like, 1971.
0: The death of these programs wasn't only a gut punch for fans. It was personal for creators like Paul Henning.
3: I think he took it very personally because, I mean, he had poured all of his blood, sweat, and tears into these shows. Well, certainly into Beverly Hillbillies, and he was quite an introvert anyway. And he, he kind of withdrew after that.
0: Now, it's tempting to paint Fred Silverman as the villain in this story, but we actually owe him a debt of gratitude. During Silverman's tenure at CBS, the Norman Lear universe expanded to include Maude and One Day at a Time. And Good Times and The Jeffersons became two of the first CBS sitcoms featuring largely African-American casts since the days of Amos and Andy. He basically created this new sophisticated
2: golden age of sitcoms, arguably the best era for sitcoms in the
0: medium's history. Did Fred Silverman have to be ruthless?
2: I think he did, Um, because I think if you look at CBS from like, you know, 72 to 76 or so, when they had, you know, All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, The Bob Newhart Show, M.A.S.H., Carol Burnett, They were airing those five shows on one night for a season. That's probably the best night of programming in the history of network television. That's amazing. It is amazing. And I don't know that that would have been... Like, could you imagine a network airing All in the Family
0: and Petticoat Junction? Do you think that Southern audiences felt abandoned when CBS axed all those shows?
1: I think so, because if you think about... Southern representation since then, you see pockets, but it's nowhere near as prevalent as it was during the 60s.
0: Even if these were caricatures in many
1: ways. Yeah, but at the same time, they're still, they, they have heart, they're, they have substance, and they have a soul.
0: I, like many of you listening, discovered the rural comedies in reruns, usually after I got home from school. They were corny and funny, but I had no idea of their former glory how many tens of millions used to watch them in prime time and how many were still watching them when they were canceled. I can understand why many people in the middle of the country might have felt aggrieved that network executives on the coasts thought they weren't the right market or desirable demographic. The rural purge happened almost 50 years ago, and yet there's something very contemporary about this story. As for Hee Haw, remember Roy Clark singing about the rural purge at the beginning of the episode? Well, he had the last laugh when the show was resurrected in first run syndication. One, two, and we'll good old music. The show lived for another 25 years. We'd like to conclude this mobituary with an in memoriam for the victims of the rural purge. Green Acres, Petticoat Junction, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Red Skelton Show, The Ed Sullivan Show, Family Affair, Hee-haw Hogan's Heroes, The Jackie Gleason Show, The Jim Neighbors Hour, Mayberry RFD, The New Andy Griffith Show, and Lassie. Next time on Mobituaries a story of how a 1980s pop song... It is a song with velocity, right? It's so big and
3: bold and brash.
0: Brought a 2019 sports team back to life.
2: I will go to my grave yes. singing Let's Gloria. Yes, I will.
0: I certainly hope you enjoyed this mobituary. May I ask you to please rate and review our podcast? You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at MoRocca. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Megan Marcus. Our team of producers also includes Harry Wood and me, MoRocca. It was edited by Meg Dalton and Nathan Miller and engineered by Nathan Miller. Additional editing by Sam Egan. Indispensable support from Genia Staneski, Lucy Kirk, Richard Rohrer, and everyone at CBS News Radio. Special thanks to David Bushman at the Paley Center for Media. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom mobituaries
3: couldn't live.